You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Everyone fears something. I grew up watching shows like Fear Factor and Who Dares Wins, uh, my family. There was no better entertainment to me than watching someone whose mates had dobbed them in to confront their greatest fear. But even more than the big challenges that happen every week on Who Dares Wins, the ones that really stood out to me was the ones where Mike Whitney would go around to shopping centres all around Melbourne and Australia and see what people were willing to do for $50. Would you be willing to put your hand in a jar of cockroaches for $50? Would you be willing to eat an emu egg, the equivalent of 12 eggs, in one go, for $50? Would you be willing to jump off a 10-meter diving platform into a pool for $50? And the thing that always stood out to me about these challenges was that they were almost entirely, completely safe. There, there was nothing that could happen to you, mostly. But still, you'd watch people wrestle with their fears. It was completely safe, The $50 was real and yet time and time again people would turn down the challenge because they were afraid. Because fear is real, isn't it? Fear shapes us. Sometimes it's logical, sometimes it's illogical, but it shapes us nonetheless. Our lives are often shaped by what we are afraid of. And Israel is no different. They might not have Mike Whitney going around Israel offering to pay them $50 to drink an emu egg, but they are afraid nonetheless. When we open up chapter 12, we find Samuel, the young man who is no longer a young man that we are introduced to in the opening chapters, is come to the end of his time as judge of Israel. And what we read is almost like a trial. He announces to them, I'm old. He says, I've listened to you and all that you've said. See, it is the king who leads you now. I am old and gray. My sons are with you. I've led you from my youth until this day. But chapter 12 is quite interesting because it actually reads as a bit of a trial. It reads as a court case. In fact, that is what Samuel says in verse 3. It says, here I am, testify against me. See, chapter 12 is a trial between Samuel, God, and Israel to determine who has been faithful, who has kept the course, who has fought the good fight. And so we read in 12 verse 3, Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. Samuel says, test me. You've seen me. You've seen the way that I work. You've seen the way that I live. Have I done anything that was unjust? And it's interesting that the things that he lists are all the warnings that he gives to Israel about the king that is to come that will take, take, take. But what does Israel say? No. If this works, hey, 
You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from the hand of anyone. In fact, they ramp it up a little. It says, the Lord is witness to you and he's anointed his witness that day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is my witness. Samuel has been cleared. Israel says, there's nothing that you've done wrong. The Lord is witness for Samuel. And then the next person in the docks, so to speak, is God himself. Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, take your stand so that I may enter into judgment with you before the Lord. And I will declare to you all the saving deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your ancestors. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your ancestors cried to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought forth your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of King Jabin of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtartes, but now rescue us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samson, and rescued you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. So how has the Lord acted? Well, the Lord has saved. The Lord has heard their cries. The Lord has rescued them. In fact, it's not been the Lord who's been unfaithful. It's been Israel. And and even in these short nine or so verses, what we discover is the normal pattern of Israel's relationship with God. Everything starts out great. It's a honeymoon period. Israel is in love with the Lord and the Lord cares for them. But slowly but surely, Israel has its heart and head turned and goes off to worship other idols, the Baals, the Ashtartes. And they bring curse upon themselves. They bring disaster upon their own heads. They cry out to God and God saves This has been the natural, normal order of Israel's relationship with God from the very beginning. But this time seems different. This time Israel asked for a king. This time Israel has cried out not for the Lord to save them, but for the Lord to appoint a king over them. What has happened? Well, Israel has become afraid. We read this. In verse 12, but when you saw the king Nahash of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, though the Lord your God was the king. Now, to be fair to the Israelites, the Ammonites were a fearsome bunch. When they they fought against him a chapter earlier in chapter 11, Uh, And they're asked to treaty. King Nahash is given an opportunity to treaty with Israel. And he says, sure, I'll treaty with you. Give me every right eye from every Israelite man. This is not a nice dude. They worshipped Moloch. Moloch was a god who demanded child sacrifice. And just like their god who was cruel, the Ammonites were cruel 
as well. And yet the Ammonites are not the only cruel nation at this time. Israel faced many cruel nations, many evil nations, and the Lord has always gone before them. But now they want a king. And why do they want a king? Because they are afraid. Give us Saul. Give us, give, us, give us someone to fight our battles for us. Lord. Give us a king to go out before us. And it's interesting. So in chapter 11, Saul has his first great military victory. But even in this victory, note the influence of God. The Spirit of God came upon Saul in power when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. I'll just skip past these. There we go. The Spirit of God came upon Saul in power when he heard these words. In verse 7, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one. In verse 13, but Saul said, no one shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has brought deliverance to Israel. Even when Israel demands a king to fight their battles, the Lord has gone before them to secure their safety and their peace. They've demanded a king to keep them safe. And even the king that's meant to keep them safe needs the Lord their God. Fear has led them astray. Fear has led them away from God, as so often fear does for us. And it's interesting that in the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 12, fear comes up again and again and again. We in fact see it four different times after verse 12 that Samuel makes a reference to Israel not fearing or that they should fear the right thing. So in verse 14, Samuel says, If you fear the Lord and serve him and heed his voice. And after God uh, thunders and rains before the harvest day, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. In verse 19, Samuel encouraged them, Don't be afraid. And in verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve Him. Don't be afraid, fear the right thing. I tend to think that the fear of the Lord is probably one of the most central, most important and most confusing aspects in the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs starts with saying that the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord and yet we have these two kind of commandments two encouragements playing off against each other fear God don't be afraid well I can't do both of those things how how on earth does that work fear the Lord don't be afraid well how can I fear God if I'm not meant to be afraid how does that work how does it even work in this chapter when God when Samuel says fear the Lord but don't be afraid Afraid? Well, I think it's because there are two kinds of fear. There is a distrusting kind of fear that leads people from God. And there is a trusting kind of fear of the Lord that leads people to Him. There is a kind of fear that causes people to doubt God and to look for solutions in other places. There is a kind of fear that encourages us to run to 
God. There is a kind of fear that leads us to God and a kind of fear that leads us from God. The, the challenge is to test where our fear leads us. Where does your fear lead you? Because everyone is afraid of something. Everyone is afraid of something, but where does your fear lead you? Does it lead you into prayerfulness or prayerlessness? Does it lead you into closeness with God or distance from God? Because one of the aspects that comes up in ungodly, sinful, distrusting fear is that it reveals our idols. It's interesting that after all this talk of fear, the great admonishment, the great encouragement in 1 Samuel chapter 12 is to not place your trust in idols. So in verse 20 and 21, Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid, you've done all this evil, yet don't turn aside from following the Lord, serve Him with all your heart, and do not turn aside after useless things slash idols that cannot profit or save, for they are useless. In your fear, don't place your trust in other things that cannot profit or save you. We tend to think of idols as uh, trinkets, things that we put in our houses that people might bow down and worship. But in fact, an idol is anything that we think will make us happy or we think will save us. If there is something in your life that you think will make you happy before God or you think will save you before God, that is an idol. I was out at a park the other day and I met a, met a, a man who's, who's there with his son and we got chatting and he'd had a bit of a hard life and he said something to me which I thought was, was incredibly insightful. He said, my son is going to be my saviour. My son is going to be my saviour. Now, we can look at that and go, well, that's, a, that's an awful burden to bear for your son. But actually, he's just telling the truth of the way that most of us live our lives. Our sons might not be our saviours, but something will be. And it's often not the Lord, at least in our minds. It might be our marriage will save us. It might be our finances will save us. It might be comfort will save us. It might be that holiday we finally get after two years of COVID. That's what's going to get me through. Laura Huxley once said that one of the great tricks that has been played on us, that we've bought the lie that having two TVs will make us twice as happy as owning one. What do you think will make you happy? What do you think will save you, rescue you? Every culture is dominated by its idols. We might not have the bars and the ashtates anymore, but we have idols nonetheless. The gyms, the high-rise buildings, the families, the entertainment. Every culture is dominated by its idols. In fact, to, to, to borrow a phrase from Tim Keller, he calls them counterfeit gods. They act like God in our life, but they're not the real thing. They're the fake thing. And the trick is that they have such a controlling influence on our hearts 
is that we could spend all of our time, all of our energy, all of our passion building our lives around these idols without even a second thought. And an idol can be just about anything. It could be your family. It could be your home. It could be being well thought of. It could be being respected. It could be having a good retirement. It could be having great finances, great riches. It could be being seen as powerful. It could be seen as just about anything that you think will make you happy or you think will save you and get you through. So how do you determine what an idol might be in your life? What do you fear losing? Is there something in your life that if you lost it, might very well be not, life might not worth be living? That's a red flag that you may have an idol. All of us are tempted by this. I know for myself that family has a great potential to be an idol. I love my family. I spend a lot of time with my family. I spent hours last night taking care of my son who's unwell. Time, energy, passion. My son is not going to save me. But there's a temptation to believe that my family will make me ultimately happy and give me what I need. What is it for you? What do you fear losing? What do you think will make you happy? What do you think will save you? And how do you dismantle an idol? How do you dismantle an idol that has such an influence over your heart that controls your passions and time and energy? Well, the way that you fight idolatry is with a superior joy in the Lord. I love the way that chapter 12 ends in verse 24. It says, Fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. It's an invitation to notice. See, the, the great sin of Israel is not necessarily rebellion, although that's a part of it. The great sin of Israel is forgetting. Israel constantly forgets what God has done for them, through them, in them, what He has promised to them currently and in the future. They're constantly forgetting. And I wonder if it's the same for us, that we simply forget all the good that God has done for us. And so we go chasing happiness. We go chasing safety. We go chasing comfort in every other place except for Him because we just keep forgetting. And I wonder whether what God is drawing us into, inviting us into, is an invitation to notice. Now, I know I'm the youngest person here. And some of you have been following Jesus for an awful long time. But something I also know is that often the longer you follow Jesus, the easier it is not only to forget, but to forget to remember. We've got our rhythms. We come to church. We see our friends. We might go to a Bible study. We read our Bibles, but we don't actually stop to notice and remember. So this is an invitation to stop 
to think about the good things that God has done in your life, the good things that God has given you, the way that God has loved you, the way that God has saved you. That more than anything will lead you to dismantle your idols because they cannot save you and they cannot make you happy. They are lies that you have bought into. But I trust Jesus when he said, I have come so that they may have life and life to the full, that he meant it. That in Christ, in God, we have happiness and safety because our Lord is the Lord of all the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning from the end. So here's what we're going to do now, just for a minute. I'm just giving a minute of silence for you to consider and to notice what God has done in your life. It could be this week, it could be last week, it could be any time. What has God been doing? What are the great things that He has done for you? But don't stop there. Take a minute tomorrow. Take a minute on Wednesday. Take a minute on Friday. Take five minutes to stop and consider the great things that God has done for you. So let's have a minute now to sit, stop and reflect. And then I'll pray for us. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning from the end. You are the one who not only makes us happy, but created happiness itself. You are the one where our safety is in. God, may we trust you more. May you reveal the idols of our hearts. And may we have a superior joy in you, Lord. May we not be forgetful like Israel, but rather lead us into remembrance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.